0: Welcome to the new Innovation Matters podcast series of the United Nations Economic Commission for Europe. Innovation Matters aims to engage leading experts on a range of topics to explore how innovation could drive sustainable development in Eurasia and beyond. Our episodes explore ongoing trends, opportunities and challenges such as the fourth industrial revolution, the sharing economy, the circular economy, autonomous vehicles and digitization. Today, we have the pleasure of welcoming Adam Thierer from last episode again. This time we're going to talk about regulation and transformative innovation, the present and the future. Welcome back, Adam. It's a pleasure to have you. Thanks again, Lars. in the first part, Adam talked about the prevalence of the precautionary principle and the need for permissionless innovation or at least presumption of innocence, and as he said at the end, more green lights than red lights, and maybe a couple of yellow lights in favor of for innovation to be able to thrive. And especially Adam talked about this view being important in technology policy and for promoting transformative innovation in general, uh, which is at the core of many of our Member States. So we're going to talk a little bit more about what's going on right now in terms of legislation, in terms of process, in terms of permissionless innovation, and what are some good and some less good approaches to deal with what we basically cannot predict. So first part, governing emerging technology. Adam, could you summarize that quickly for us?
1: Certainly. Well, to recap what we discussed on the previous episode, the pacing problem refers to the idea that the pace of technological change in the modern world tends to be extraordinarily rapid, sometimes even exponential in nature, whereas the pace of policy change tends to be more incremental, very, very slow. And the problem is that there's a growing gap between these two things, between technological change and policy change. And this is what scholars refer to as the pacing problem. There are other names for it. The exponential gap, the governance gap and still other terms. But the pacing problem is the term we see most often to describe this really nagging issue for modern lawmakers, which is that almost as soon as they've worked their way up a learning curve with a new emerging technology or sector, they're confronted with the reality that another technology or sector is come along that they have to deal with. And so this has become a, a real challenge for modern policy, and it really necessitates a new way of thinking about governance and how we go about governing the future.
0: And I think that this is on the mind of uh, our member states, not only when it comes to regulation, but also when you think of uh, public procurement. About how do you, instead of saying what technology you want, how do you say what kind of impact you want to have and try to quantify them, allow for some flexibility to actually promote innovation to reach the goals that you want to do. So many people are talking about this. We don't see a lot of it in practice. And now is where I would like you to talk about essentially the big story in your book, the book about a technology that that came up that we knew about. We could only guess the potential about it. As usual, we overestimated the potential in the short term, underestimated it in the long term, and that is, of course, the Internet, Uh, where you point out that we took a very liberal approach in the beginning, and then we'll talk about what's happening uh, right now.
1: Well, the Internet came along at a time when regulators and governments across the world were very heavily regulating communications and media sectors. But something interesting happened at least in the United States, in the mid-1990s when the Internet was coming about. It was essentially forgotten. It was kind of ignored for a while. And there was so much attention on yesterday's communications and media technologies, so much policy and, and regulatory effort, that the Internet kind of had a space to have a birth that was a largely free reign to come out and do interesting things. After that, governments became more aware of it, and... At first, the U.S. government wasn't sure what to do, but came out with a fairly amazing statement during the Clinton administration in the United States called the Framework for Global Electronic Commerce. that basically said that the Internet should be treated as a, quote, market driven arena and that we should utilize a more decentralized approach to its governance, relying on contracts and property rights and the courts and market based transactions more generally. This was a very fresh break from how communications and media sectors and technologies had been governed and regulated in the United States and the rest of the world for the better part of the last century. And so the Internet was born free. It was a really interesting thing to study from the perspective of political science and economics, because we saw then the beginnings of an experiment with how we govern a new communications or media technology, the Internet, versus how we were governing an old one. And what became pretty clear is that when you gave innovators in a new space like this a lot of freedom, they would take full advantage of it, and it would become a really vibrant space for intellectual curiosity and creativity. And so the Internet just blossomed and really became something that nobody could have predicted a few years prior to that and continues to evolve to this day in very, very interesting ways. Again, it's powered by all of these concurrent technological revolutions revolutions in computing, in storage, in bandwidth, and wireless services, and wireless devices. These things all build on top of each other, of course, building on the primary building block, the power of the semiconductor. All of these things came together to give us the Internet revolution. But the most important part of that revolution was the policy revolution that said we were going to treat the Internet and digital commerce in a permissionless way. We were going to give them the green light of innovation in this space as compared with the old world where you had nothing but red lights and some yellow ones that basically said, nope, 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 thou shall not. Until you get the blessing of someone in government, you will not come out with a new product or innovation that we have to approve in this bureaucracy. And so that's an amazing story from a from a from a political scientist perspective like my own to study and then also to study comparative governance systems for the internet across the globe, including in Europe. I think there's lessons there as well.
0: This came from the Democratic Party, right? Right after a president who celebrated deregulation but put more regulations on the books, who celebrated balancing the budget but added to the budget. And then in comes Clinton uh, from the left and does this and a couple of other high liberal reforms. Why This sea change, the only thing that comes to mind is that we had a couple of years before, especially here in Europe, we had tremendous success, unparalleled success with telecommunications deregulation. So maybe there was a consensus around that that helped. But what else led the U.S. to take the stance, and especially the Democratic Party?
1: Well, that's a great question. I I don't have the definitive answer on that. There's a lot of different questions that could be raised about why is it that a – Democratic Party in the United States was the one that ushered in not only the deregulation of modern communications and media technologies, but a couple of decades prior to that, it was Democrats in the United States who had ushered in airline and transportation deregulation. Even though we would not think in the United States that the Democratic Party is being more deregulatory, the reality is the most important deregulations in modern American history happened under Democratic administrations. (laughs) It's an interesting fact. Now, one theory could be that the Republican Party in the United States, which is often thought to be more pro-business, is actually too pro-business. That they actually are too captured in some cases by certain special interests who want to preserve the status quo. Remember, the most important friend to the future is usually not yesterday's leading technology company. They want to hold on to the past and their gains from the past. And when they have more of a say in the regulatory process or the lawmaking process, they'll often act to stop new types of change. And so maybe it's the case, and this is just a theory I have, that Republicans in the United States, even though they talk about the benefits of business and capitalism, they don't really want truly vibrant, open free market capitalism. (laughs) They want something different. And I think it took someone like Bill Clinton and his administration in the 90s to say, hey, it's okay for us to try something different. This is a chance for us to take a fresh start with communications and media technology policy." And I will give them all the credit in the world for that sort of thinking, because that is exactly, exactly what we need to do, not only in the United States, Maura, but in Europe and every other country. Allow for policy experiments and allow for change and think about freshening up old rules that maybe don't make any sense anymore. So uh, in the United States in the mid-90s, we passed a major law, the Telecommunications Act of 1996. The most notable things about that law were that it was a very backwards-looking law for the most part. It was very much preoccupied with dealing with broadcast television and broadcast radio or cable television, satellite TV, and traditional telephone, wireline telephone services. It spent far less time thinking about the future. But that ended up being a wonderful thing (laughs) because basically it left the Internet free to develop more spontaneously. And as I just said, there were some wonderful results because of that. However, there were a few small provisions in the U.S. Telecommunications Act of 1996 related to the new world of the Internet and digital commerce. And one of them was so-called Section 230 of the Communications uh, Act, which was basically a section that said that online intermediaries, online platforms, would not be held liable for the content placed on those platforms by third parties, such that you couldn't be sued if you were America Online at the time or a service like them. You couldn't be sued if someone uploaded something that was very controversial or even maybe potentially broke a law. That was an important policy because it it immunized online intermediaries from really punishing forms of liability that would have driven them out of business in all likelihood. As a result of that small but important policy change, online markets just thrived, became very vibrant, and were able to grow without fear of the punishing liability that could follow if somebody said something really stupid on their sites. Well, Section 230 is still with us today. It's very controversial, but there's no doubt that it has driven a really vibrant open ecosystem that allows for more competition and choice in the digital sphere than in the traditional analog sphere. It will probably be tweaked, probably be changed in coming years, but hopefully it won't be completely gutted because it's really been, as I've argued in my book, it's sort of the secret sauce that powered the digital revolution in the United States versus other countries. And uh, it shows you that sometimes policy can be positive towards the future. In this case, it was kind of accidental. It really Nobody really paid attention to that provision when it was passed. It was meant to do something somewhat different than it actually ended up doing. So once again, we had what I call accidental deregulation. <laughs> it, with the policy, you know, nobody set out to really do what they tried to. It just happened. But in this case, it happened in a fortuitous way that benefited uh, innovators and platforms in this space.
0: So now, fast forward 20, 25 years later, and we have a range of problems. You can take your pick. We have some pretty damning admissions from Facebook. We have Google with a near monopoly, and then, of course, privacy, which no one really defines apart from health and financial data, but there are lots of concerns about that. And the whole discussion about hate speech, which seems to be a definition that's that's widening. This is taking place despite the fact that they're shielded from criminal and civil liability by this section. Where are we now in the process?
1: So first, let's acknowledge that, yes, we have some problems with modern Internet and digital technology companies and issues. But it's good that we allowed a process to unfold where we could allow for a great deal of competition and innovation to take place to see what those problems are. Some of the problems we have today probably couldn't have been easily predicted in the past. Some of them could have been. But the reality is is that we we allowed the trial and error process to move forward. And now we're looking to figure out what needs to be addressed or supplemented in terms of ex-ante approaches to policy. Like what sort of remedies do we need to address certain privacy, safety, or security vulnerabilities or or issues online. So we at least got to this point in the right way. (laughs) But yes, we found that there are problems. And there are some solutions that will need to be legal or regulatory. And there are others that could probably still benefit from a more bottom-up, decentralized approach. I happen to believe that when it pertains to something like hate speech, for example, it's better to probably utilize a more flexible toolkit of governance approaches and norms and self-regulatory approaches to address that issue, as opposed to coming in with sweeping speech restrictions, which can have a lot of unintended consequences. And so we need to be extraordinarily careful when we're dealing with something that affects free speech values like that. On other other cases like cybersecurity, you can sense that there's a lot of vulnerabilities out there that need to be addressed, especially by small and medium-sized enterprises, Um, that may necessitate certain types of transparency requirements or reporting requirements. I think when we talk about what types of regulations work better than others, ones that are focused on things like transparency, disclosure, education remedies, those tend to be more flexible and pro-innovation than command and control like prohibitions, right? Because obviously any connected system has security vulnerabilities at some level. As soon as you allow any connection with something outside your your walls of your company or your home or whatever, you've got a potential vulnerability. But we need to have connections to the world. We need to be able to have a network society because there's great benefits with it. So even with something like cybersecurity, we need to continue to allow for vibrant innovation to happen without excessive regulation. But maybe we can come up with rules that require certain levels of, again, transparency or disclosure when vulnerabilities are found and when hacks have been uh, uh, unearthed. So that's an example of how we can utilize a governance toolkit that's more flexible to address concerns or risks or harms that develop that we find without necessarily completely derailing the wondrous innovations that are provided by those sectors or those companies.
0: Uh, One thing still is one where I struggle myself to find um, anywhere near a satisfactory solution. And that is, what do we do with antitrust? Normally, we would define it as hurting the consumer. In this case, that's hard to prove. Still, some companies have an enormous influence, and especially because we don't have effective ways of uh, anonymizing and transferring data according to certain protocols in real time. They have an enormous advantage that seems very difficult to overcome. At the same time, these exact network externalities are what is enabling, for instance, the coming sharing economy and a sort of uh, meeting of, of supply and demand in real time that we need for many of the positive effects to come. What's your take on that?
1: I agree with everything you just said. I think I struggle with it myself. Uh, I will say this, at least with antitrust remedies, they tend to be ex-post remedies, right? They're not usually ex ante remedies. We don't try to determine proper market structure, usually preemptively through antitrust. We allow market structure to evolve. And then when something goes afoul of competition policy laws um, and antitrust policies, then an action is sought. So that at least has some benefits over traditional certain types of technocratic regulation. But antitrust law, even when opposed after the fact, can go wrong. It can go too far, and we have to be careful so as to not upset the tools and the, and the model that has generated so many benefits for society. We have to properly identify where a true consumer are lies. I mean, this is as you, as you pointed out, Lars, it's extraordinarily difficult. I mean, when I look at a product like Google Search, which is very, very dominant, it's very, very hard for me to find consumer harms. I mean, starting with the fact that Google Search doesn't cost us anything and it provides an enormous range of other potential suite, a suite of potential services for people to access that also don't charge. I mean, think about Google Maps, an enormously beneficial uh, resource out there for use and uh, Gmail and several other things. I mean. Do I want more competition to Google? Absolutely, I do. But I don't want it in the form of sort of a sledgehammer of antitrust that destroys all the wonderful benefits Google and others provide today in their sectors, even if they tend to be quite dominant. Now, how do we grow more small and medium sized enterprises in competition? This is an important policy question, and I have one really clear answer and then a lot of fuzzy ones. One really clear answer to how we get more small and medium-sized enterprises is don't put public policies in place that discourage small and medium-sized enterprises. The biggest problem small and medium-sized enterprises have is compliance costs, is dealing with endless paperwork burdens and the lawyering issues that accompany that really heavy-handed overarching regulatory frameworks. There in Europe, there have been groups like the digital small uh, and medium-sized enterprise alliance that have like talked about the, the compliance costs associated with GDPR and the forthcoming AI act and pointed out like, if you do these things, the way you've constructed them, you're probably going to get less competition, less new entry from the very competitors that we need to take on the Googles and the Facebooks and the apples of the world. And so don't shoot yourself in the foot is the first and best competition policy when you're looking to create more competition. And the number one way you don't shoot yourself in the foot is don't impose excessive compliance costs on the new kids in town. Now, what else can be done? Well, we could go into a discussion about industrial policy. I'm a very I'm an industrial policy skeptic, and I don't want to go too into that. But there is a lot of discussion in Europe and the United States right now about how governments can incentivize more competitors. I'm skeptical governments do a good job of picking the companies that technologies we need for tomorrow. But it's very strange to me that. The same governments that are imposing so many burdens and compliance costs on small and medium sized companies are at the same time saying we need to do more to support them. (laughs) You should start by not burdening them, because even if you give them some state support, they'll never be able to get off the ground if they're stuck forever dealing with really costly compliance burdens from the regulatory state.
0: I wanted to move now to the way this conflict between permissionless innovation and the precautionary principle works in action in the discussions and in the drafts that you've been looking at, uh, first on AI governance and then on a few other technologies. If you read Daryl West, for instance, there's a, a range of things we should be worried about. Health data, a lot of racial bias, uh, facial recognition. People are worried about artificial intelligence and what it can do, and they probably also don't understand how much it can do for us and or it is doing for us. So talk a little bit about how we view artificial intelligence and the regulatory and political approach to it.
1: Certainly. This is the topic of my next book on the future of artificial intelligence and the so-called computational revolution that's unfolding before us. Computational revolution can include everything from AI to machine learning to robotics to quantum science. And basically, we're witnessing a a potential replay of the information revolution that the Internet brought us. And the computational revolution in AI will be building upon the power of modern information technology and networks and the Internet. So lots of potential benefits with that, with the rise of algorithmic systems and AI. But, of course, there's also many, many fears about not just the traditional issues of privacy, safety, security, and so on, but even more broad-based uh, amorphous values like algorithmic justice, algorithmic fairness. I mean, nobody can be against those phrases, but what do they mean? You know, you have to define your terms if you're going to try to preemptively regulate. And I think what we're seeing happening right now in many countries, and especially throughout Europe, is a move to try to deal with these concerns about artificial intelligence using a precautionary principle a toolkit that would impose a risk-based framework on AI technologies based on some crystal ballgays, where they said, look at all these technologies and look at all the potential risks they could raise. And the proposed European uh, Union AI Act has a long list of technologies and sectors that it considers to be potentially high risk. Well, what that means is that you're going to preemptively say that you cannot launch a product in Europe until you have gained the blessing of a new bureaucracy that will oversee this regulatory process for AI and machine learning. And this is going to ultimately probably make it so that fewer innovators and fewer investors want to launch AI products in Europe. And that's the sad reality of this is if you, if America and China and other countries are willing to give these companies and investors more leeway to launch new algorithmic services, That's where it's going to happen, because we live in a world of global innovation arbitrage. And just as capital moves to wherever it's treated most hospitably, so do innovators and the innovations that they create. So I think this is a real challenge for Europe. I hope it's not the case that when we talk again in like five years, we can't name any major AI companies from Europe. I would hate that to be the result because AI innovators and scientists are all over Europe today. Some of the leading scientists in the field of algorithmic science and computational sciences are in European universities and European companies. But if they're not given a chance to offer the world the next great product or service, they're going to move somewhere else and do it.
0: And I think that's what's probably going to happen because of the AI Act. Good. Good. Well, let's talk about some of the other exponential technologies quickly. Uh, you talk about Internet of Things and examples of application. We had Jason Potts on who talked about the blockchain alone or the distributed ledger, perhaps being the greatest invention of the century because of the possibility to automate transactions. Talk about some of the regulatory or policy approaches there and what you see playing out.
1: Certainly. Well, I should mention I'm not an expert on blockchain or Bitcoin or cryptocurrencies, but I covered them as part of a wide variety of emerging technology sectors that I'm interested in the governance of. And clearly we are witnessing this classic conflict of visions between these two worlds of permissionless innovation, the precautionary principle unfold in a major way in the world of cryptocurrency and uh, blockchain regulation. And it's still unclear to me how this is going to turn out. I think this is a far greater challenge for regulators I think many regulatory agencies don't even really understand what they're getting into and understand the nature of these technologies. In some cases, they're just not equipped with the right kind of staff resources to take on these issues. But even if they have good staff and good resources, it's not really clear what regulation looks like in a global world. I mean, I'll go back to the point I made before about regulating AI. We live in a global marketplace, and this notion that I I mentioned of global innovation arbitrage, is a fundamental driver of policy today. And it's in the governance of emerging tech, because there are so many ways people can move to other places and attempt to offer a great service somewhere else. Now, in the European Union, the so-called Brussels effect of extending the reach of European laws and regulation to cover emerging technology has been widely discussed in the world of public policy for emerging technology, because there's no doubt in some cases European regulation does have extraterritorial effect, but it only does at the margin in the sense that it's mostly impacting the largest players. So the Brussels effect for me is more like the Brussels defect in the sense that it only is really hammering the Googles and the Facebooks and the Apples and the Microsofts of the world. It's not affecting the small upstarts as much in the United States and certainly not in China and not just in the AI space, but in the cryptocurrency space and in fields related spaces like Internet of Things and wearable technologies and genetics and all sorts of other ones. I think the reality is, is that the Brussels effect is more marginal. And so I think the better approach for Europe would be to look at emerging technologies like blockchain and Bitcoin and Internet of Things and AI and try to find a way to embrace them and give people more opportunities through a somewhat more permissive approach to innovation in those spaces. I think it's clear a lot of regulators want to go in a very very different direction on these issues.
0: Tell us about the few things that we can do to mitigate risks. Absolutely.
1: So, here's what
0: many people say we should do to address
1: risks associated with artificial intelligence and other emerging technologies. They would basically say first, we need to somehow bake in, by design, ethical best practices for privacy, safety, security, non-discrimination. Baking in by design means like you you intentionally insert within the development process certain ethical best practices or principles and say, we want these values or principles protected. That's sort of the first order of business. The second order of business that everyone wants is keeping humans in the loop, quote, unquote, meaning like. We need to have a way when algorithmic systems fail to make sure that humans have some mechanisms to stop bad things from happening. So, again, two principles, baking in best practices by design, ethical best practices. Number two, keeping humans in the loop. I want to say that I completely agree with those two principles. But there are two different ways about going about those principles. One would be to try to impose preemptively through a precautionary principle mechanism all of this by regulatory design and say this all must be preemptive preemptively imposed up front. You need to go through a very strict regulatory process before you can do anything. You have to prove those two things to us. Well, what that means is that every single moment that there's an algorithmic change in any algorithmic system out there, you've got to go through a very slow regulatory process before anything can happen. I just don't think that works. But I do think we can still utilize the best of what those in the precautionary principle community favor, baking in ethical best practices, keeping humans in loop, we can impose that in a more decentralized way. We can use a more organic bottom-up approach. We can utilize the so-called soft law mechanisms of utilizing best practices, codes of conduct, professional associations, requiring things of their members. We can use so-called multi-stakeholder processes where governments and industry and other types of people in civil society and academia convene ongoing meetings and discussions to figure out how to encourage ethical best practices and humans in the loop. What I'm getting at here is two ways to accomplish the same thing. And there are many people of the precautionary principle persuasion who just don't believe what I'm saying can be done in a decentralized fashion. They don't think it's good enough or they just don't think it can work. And I'm saying to them, look, you've got to figure out how to get these things done. If you can't get the laws and regulations passed that you want because We could argue about which one's system works better, but part of my critique of the existing precautionary system is that it cannot keep pace with modern technological change or with the global innovation arbitrage problem. You need to have a backup plan. You need to be able to find an alternative way to achieve governance without government. It's not to say government doesn't play a role. It, It can play a very big role. And in my book and in all my papers, you will never find me advocating for the deregulation or the elimination of any law or agency. I don't say it in any of my books, but I do say these agencies and laws need to accommodate technological change. They must change the presumption from one of guilty until proven innocent to innocent until proven guilty, and then have responsive, reflexive agile governance mechanisms that can change with the pace of technology. So I think this is what's going to occupy all of our time over the next 10 years is this fight, because the computational revolution is upon us. I don't think there's any way to bottle up these technologies. I'm a big believer in the principles that many in the precautionary principle camp want to impose. I just think there's a better way of going about it in a more decentralized and flexible fashion.
0: After I read your book, I also read the book by George Friedman called The Storm Before the Calm that sees the U.S. going through socioeconomic and institutional cycles, and both of them ending in about 2030. He talks about a world where regulation is basically impossible in the old sense, where all we can do is to say what we want to achieve, the things that we want to avoid, and then make the companies comply with that and almost have more sort of a common law system around it but leave the technological details out of it.
1: Yeah, I agree. And when we get into something as complicated as algorithmic systems and processes, someone needs to answer for me and for those developers exactly how an algorithm that's literally updated every single hour of the day in our smartphones or in our homes or in our systems or industrial systems how that's supposed to run through a traditional regulatory process and be approved in a timely way such that it does not undermine the positive changes that we would associate with constant, ongoing iteration. And so you need a more flexible approach. If people say things like agile governance, flexible governance, decentralized governance, they need to mean something by it. They need to talk about what the framework is. And conversely, if people want an overarching preemptive approach, I mean, they need to tell us exactly what they think that process is going to entail and what the the cost could be. I'll give the European Union credit in formulating the EU AI Act. They've at least tried to put some numbers down about what they expect compliance costs to be for small and medium sized enterprises to go through the process of creating internal compliance systems to deal with the prior conformity assessments and other requirements of the law. And they have estimated an upper bound of 400,000 euros. That is an enormous burden to place on a small or medium-sized enterprise. And is it really going to have beneficial results, or is it going to end up shooting the European technology sector in its foot while the European leaders are saying we need a technology set of champions to take on China and the U.S.? I think this is something the European Union has to decide for itself, and I, I think right now with the direction of the policy world is going in Europe is suggesting. It's not going to be beneficial for those innovators going forward.
0: I'd like you to talk about this long-standing narrative that we have both here in Europe and in the U.S. We seem to be particularly upset about not having many unicorns. Now, sometimes I find this exaggerated because uh, I mean, precision engineering is excellent in Germany and Sweden and in Switzerland. Uh, Amsterdam has a startup scene. But we don't have the unicorns except for Skype. Is regulation what we need to get right before we can even start thinking about creating the same kind of dynamism that you have in the Silicon Valley?
1: Regulation is only one part of getting innovation culture right. There are many, many other factors. In fact, in my work, I stress that the single most important factor about creating a positive innovation culture is people. It's about allowing a flow of talent and about encouraging people to come and relocate in your country or continent and do wonderful things. I think this is something America did very, very well in the past and has unfortunately turned a corner on and is doing very, very poorly right now. I think America is unfortunately closing its doors to the world's best and brightest minds and talent at a time when they need to be opening the doors and allowing them in. This is a great opportunity for Europe. Uh, It's a multicultural continent, and... Has many, many immigrants there already. I don't know if Europe will go the same path that the United States appears to be going and hurt itself. But if we both want to counter China going forward, this is the way to do it. We want to attract their best and brightest minds to come to Europe and America to innovate. So for me, before we even get to the question of regulatory policy towards technology, we need to talk about policy towards labor, policy specifically towards immigration, and figure out how to solve that first. Then secondly, we need to talk about institutional stability. We need to talk about other broader macroeconomic issues and think about what else in the economy we need to get right. Obviously, regulation isn't going to make a, a difference if your monetary system and your governance system is completely broken and in a state of you know, upheaval. Um, stability matters. And so there are many other factors like these that go into innovation culture. I don't know where America's headed on this front. I think it depends right now on a number of variables and factors. And when you finally get to regulation, we have a hodgepodge of interesting rules and regulations in America towards emerging technologies. We haven't even gotten into a sector like drones, which is an autonomous system, an algorithmic system. But in the United States, America's policies towards flying things like drones is very, very regressive, very heavy handed. Europe is much more flexible. And Canada and Australia and other countries are even more flexible than than Europe. It's unclear what's going to happen on driverless cars and others. So we have this patchwork of policies in the United States that doesn't make any sense. Now, I don't want to have consistency brought to that patchwork in the in the direction of more precaution. I'd rather have it be more permissionless innovation. But what we have is a patchwork of a little bit of permissionless innovation here and a lot of precautionary principle there. And it's sporadic. And so when we do get to the question of policy, the question of policy consistency is a really interesting one to me, because in a world of combinatorial innovation where all of these sectors and technologies converge, will public policy towards emerging tech end up discouraging some types of innovation relative to others? And I think the answer is yes in the United States. And we'll have to see what happens in Europe, because Europe's taking a far more comprehensive approach. It is trying to have a more consistent approach to algorithmic regulation and emerging technology, but it's trying to do it in a very precautionary, heavy-handed way. So what I really fear, more than anything else, are the geopolitical ramifications of Europe and America getting our policies towards the future wrong and allowing China the chance to really dominate in those sectors
0: as a result of what we do wrong. Definitely. Adam Tierer, it's been a pleasure to have you as a guest. I think there's some well-chosen final words. Thank you very much for being on Innovation Matters. Thank you so much for having me. I really did enjoy it.